0: My name is Carl Churchill. I live in Union City, New Jersey, and I'm a graphics reporter with the Wall Street Journal. My childhood passion really was art and history growing up. So if I doodled maps, it wasn't really out of a love for maps, it was out of a love for what the map would represent. Or out of an aesthetic of a kind of map associated with a particular artistic movement or or historical theme that I was actually passionate about. Um, I only really became interested in maps unto themselves later on in college and grad school. Coincidentally, right around the exact same time, I realized GIS gave me a better job, uh, chance at landing a job than a history degree would. I had gone to undergrad very much with the intent of getting a history degree and then going into archeology span actually.
1: But around my
0: junior year-ish, because I had a bit of an odd college career, I learned about GIS and thought it was kind of a good way of keeping that liberal arts bent, being able to work on history and, and cultural stuff. But with having a lot more job security and a lot more technical skills that, that um, could kind of explore that, that side of my interests as well. And I ended up taking a GIS certificate at my undergrad at the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs, in my last year and a half of college. And that was really what started it. And I ended up getting a master's in GIS at ASU. And that was really when I started doing freelance maps as a way of applying what I learned in my classes on my own terms. And I would say that really is the definitive beginning of my dedicated interest in maps and my actual mapping career. My first job in GIS was actually, well, I had an internship during grad school, but my first GIS job proper was only after grad school, working as a GIS analyst, too, for a surveying firm in Phoenix.
1: So you're out of the box. You got a job at a a surveying firm managing their data. Were you making their maps or...? (laughs) I feel like I need to constantly
0: emphasize how um, kind of low-level I started, at least. I was a GIS analyst, too, at the surveying firm. I was not managing anyone's data. I was basically making, like, survey maps um, from GPS data in ArcMap. And there were multiple GIS people who were, who were vastly above my level.
1: I gotta say, like, for a GIS first guy, like your maps are incredible. That is not the default. And it's probably because you, you know, you have artistic talent. I mean, was there anyone getting paid by ASU to teach you to make nice maps?
0: I'd always had a deep interest in art. I'd been looking at art and infographics my entire life. I read Nat Nat Geo. As I imagine many people you've interviewed have. And from the get go, I always wanted to make maps that looked like the maps that I would browse on Pinterest when I should have been paying attention to my lectures. So I remember very clearly looking at like the Esri blog and looking at maps made by Cooper Thomas um, and John Nelson and Aileen Buckley and being like, I want to make something that looks like that. I don't want to make that. I don't want to follow a tutorial. I want to basically be able to sit down and turn my idea into something that looks like that. Just absorbing, I think, a gargantuan amount of reference information and immersing myself constantly in thousands and thousands and thousands of pictures of high quality maps, rather than kind of following tutorials and following step by steps, I think that's what kind of allowed me to really develop a certain style pretty quickly. That combined with spending a lot of time very late at night while my roommate was sleeping, um, staring at Photoshop at my computer.
1: Mm. So a very thick inspiration folder, ArcGIS Pro, and Photoshop is what you picked up. Start your foray into making real nice looking maps.
0: Basically, just rather instead of following step by steps, um, say, why do the borders on this Nat Geo or this Washington Post map look so good? And why do they look better than the maps I have in my GIS textbook? I'm going to look up how they did that. And I'm only going to read tutorials and take advice from people whose work I like and solve specific problems as they come up rather than having like a systematic step one to finish map process. It was chaotic and it took a lot of work, but I think it really paid off in the end.
1: Learning cartography is like making omelets. Your first one looks terrible. Your 10th, pretty good. Your hundredth is smooth. And there really is no way around it than just trying to see what works because every place you map is idiosyncratic and has its own way of making it look nice. There's really no, you know, formula. No, <laughs> no, uh, and all GIS instruction and, you know, I guess practice is pressing buttons and scripting. And cartography is just not that in any way.
0: I, I completely agree. I spend a lot of time, um, I promise this, this digression will have a point, I spend a lot of time making music as a hobby and oftentimes because music has this kind of get-rich-quick aura to it It's inundated with tutorials telling you how to make a good song how to make a good beat how to do this how to do that and there's really people try to obfuscate entirely the endless amounts of difficult work and repetition it takes to achieve a true level of, of skill that you can apply with originality. And you end up with many people like following meticulous step-by-step plans and tutorials to create something good, but then they can't replicate it. They can't modify it and they can't develop their own style. They simply become very good at following instructions to awkwardly imitate someone else's style. And if you can get away from that mindset, and this is not to say that tutorials are bad. It's absolutely the opposite from it. It's that developing the skill of knowing which tutorials are useful when and when you need to just peel your eyes away from that and find the problems and solutions individually yourself in the purpose of fulfilling your own ideas, that's when you really start to develop your own skills and you won't need to rely on step-by-step instructions. I think that really makes a, a massive difference and it certainly did for me.
1: What kind of music uh, are you making?
0: I make um, like beats, um, some EDM stuff. I chose it very deliberately as a hobby, actually, because I realized if I, I if I make maps as a hobby when it became my job, I'd end up making maps all day, every day, um, from, from sunup to sundown. And I would become very quickly burnt out on it. So I wanted something that was similarly technical, creatively engaging and use some of the, some similar, um, management, like time management practices. And I'd always had a passion for music and it, it seemed a very natural fit. Um, and, and it works out very, very well, um, making music, especially electronic music, if you're working primarily as a digital cartographer. Or really any sort of digital art form, like digital art, um, you're applying very similar creative muscles. You're having to make very similar decisions. You know, choosing when to cut versus when to add, balancing many different elements, maintaining a hierarchy, just a hierarchy of sounds rather than a hierarchy of visuals, managing projects, managing deadlines, knowing when to give yourself something small to relax and have fun with, and knowing when to kind of knuckle down and work your way through something larger, even if it's not necessarily as enjoyable as it was when you were just
1: throwing ideas
0: around. Those apply very well to map making, but because I'm not making a map at that actual time, I'm not burnt out and I can come to map making with that same sort of spark I had right when I was just fiddling with stuff at 2 a.m. in my dorm room in ASU. Um, and And I really enjoy it. Luckily, GIS almost totally lacks the sort of hustle, get-rich-quick um, f- frenzy that the online music community often has. So the tutorials, I will say, are, are vastly more useful and more enjoyable because people are willing to be more honest about the difficulties and uncertainties that involves any melding of, of artwork and craft.
1: Deliberately picked a hobby that uh, had enough computer overlap with you know map making, but not so close that... Uh, it would just feel like you went went home and just continued doing your job until you went to bed and did it all over again
0: that's exactly it
1: and any time
0: you're applying artistic skills to your job, you have to be clear with yourself in some way that art is art and work is work, and the the best and any way you can keep those things in balance and find enjoyability in craftsmanship is going to pay dividends for not only your work-life balance but your overall mental health and i think it's going to make you feel more fulfilled and, and certainly worked out relatively well for for me um so it's, it's really me just trying to live a balanced life and be respectful of my limits and try and find stimulation in ways that doesn't compromise my passion
1: Yeah, that's good to hear. Whenever I heard that phrase, like, you do what you love, you'll never work a day in your life. I'm like, that's such horseshit. If you do what you love for money, you're going to hate what you originally loved. That's exactly it. The maps I sell for money and the maps I make as a hobby are just so far apart stylistically that they don't step on each other. My money-making niche is just like high-throughput cute stuff you put in a corporate PowerPoint or stick on a corporate wall, which luckily nobody who ever commissions those has a lot to criticize about my you know hill shading or rock texture or actual down in the will cartography they just you know want that label to be bigger and in, in the company colors and so that leaves a lot of headroom in my creative tank for when like oh i'm off the clock i'm gonna make my own map of a town i like and commission illustrations and wire up my own sodium lamp to backlight it no one would ever buy that and i'm like good If I had to worry that I was going to make money with the maps I liked, I would be in dire straits indeed.
0: Yeah. And it's why I'm so grateful. And sometimes that I'm not a freelancer, that I don't have to make maps with that sort of pressure of meeting a particular deadline. And it's the only thing that I can make money off of Um, because ultimate respect to freelancers who do do that. But, for me, I, I, I worry very deeply it would compromise my passion for map making. And I'm lucky, very lucky that I've been able to find a measure of peace and balance with working for a larger company, which I know many people um, cannot or, or will not do, and still enjoy maps and get paid for it and know that I, I'm not getting paid by the individual map, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah like especially in editorial maps when you might, you're might you on the dailies. So you, it's just about your batting average. Hey, the paper's got to go to bed. That was pretty good. I went home. I didn't sweat over it.
0: Yeah, which can wear you out in, in certain ways for sure. Um, but, I mean, what doesn't wear you out in some way?
1: Looking at some of your maps, I'm just like, damn, that's astounding technique. And so I'd love a, a little uh, process dive your Ore map in the Imhoff style. I was looking at that today and I'm like, I have spent so many times fidgeting with the gradient map, trying to get that color and it never sticks. What's your process for getting that absolutely perfect, I guess, Imhoff style. You may be able to
0: predict my answer, but it's from looking at a absolute shit ton of Edward Imhoff maps again and again and again, and sometimes using the eyedropper tool and trying to figure out how I make my color at a particular point of a hill shape match exactly his color. And reading academic journals. Um, One thing that really helps me out, and I hope more people do it, and and I'm kind of surprised that I don't see it mentioned as much, is like being willing to engage directly with academic writing. Um, I'm very comfortable with it because it was a big part of my education, you know, with with the history degree you're, you're reading academia constantly and you're you're writing journal articles and stuff i have a i have a paper in an under, undergraduate journal about medieval islamic um fighting systems if, if you ever want to go down that road on a gis podcast but you know there's like papers cartographic scientific papers that talk about edward eimhoff and the history of swiss cartography and his color theory and the way you do shaded relief in that very very high level abstract style and by reading those even if you can't necessarily follow along with you know the formula for how to calculate a Lambertian hill shade there's a lot you can pick up from it and if you immerse yourself in that as many times as you can you'll find you develop this this vocabulary of almost micro gestures and micro understandings where, you know, if if you're in Photoshop, you could make, make a layer transparent in a hundred different ways, just based on what opacity value it has. So why would you make a layer transparent at 10 versus 11 versus 20 versus 30? There's not really necessarily a firm scientific answer to that though. though Sometimes there may be, or at least guidance, but if you spend enough time experimenting, trying to match reference images, you'll eventually develop a sort of very primal level feel that guides you on when to pick 11 versus 10. And that accumulates over the process of making a map towards this this seeming, um, masterful planning that didn't actually really exist. You did most of it based on vibes, but those vibes happened to be formed out of this gargantuan soup of background information. That's really what it is. I did not have like, um, a long document laying out the justification for every single little value. I basically back up some of it with stuff that I've read. But then the rest of it is just a sense of intuition. That's not, you know, this genetic skill. It's really just the collection of a lot of reference information blended together over repetition and experimentation. There really is no secret besides just going through. I, I, I do apologize.
1: Are there journals that you like reading or you just go on Google Scholar and search for Imhoff?
0: Yes, I mean, I mean, literally, I'll do that. I'll just look up like, Edward Imhoff, um, hillshade, hypsometric, and I'll read everything that looks like a smart person wrote it. And and you know, I'll even go through like Twitter, and I'll just look up Twitter, shaded relief, and I'll read every single tweet I can find. You know, like a lot of the stuff I learned about tree cover and speckling, um, that's in that vintage shaded relief tutorial. That was from basically finding every single thing Tom Patterson has ever written and reading it and trying it out and not going for a one-to-one match, but getting close enough that I know how he did it and I could apply it myself.
1: Hmm. That's fun. it's so funny. I was literally just about to ask about the tree stippling. like I, I, I might get an answer that's like, well, have you tried reading a thousand things and trying 10,000 things? How did you do the tree stipple on the Oray County
0: map? The fundamental secret is, is a combination of blending modes and the properties of a roster. You have a roster of tree cover, right? So say zero or black is no tree cover and a hundred or white is is 100% tree cover based on whatever criteria the land cover roster you have. In this case, I think I was using NLCD, which is very good land cover data for the United States.
1: So uh, a continuous raster of NLCD canopy percentage. Exactly.
0: Okay. Um, but really, that could be applied to any land cover um, roster. I export it as a TIFF file, and then you end up with a kind of a black and white TIFF file white spots are forest, black spots are no forest, and there's a a range of grays that cover, you know, shrubland and kind of mixed canopy and, and everything like that. What you basically do is, I need to quickly review my tutorial because I may not give the exact same instruction as what I did then. Basically, you're going to use the dissolve blending mode on that layer and the dissolve blending mode in photoshop punches random holes in a roster based on its grayscale value so off the top of my head white means it's not going to punch any holes black i think means it it punches a lot of holes and it gives it this very speckly look but it's kind of an ugly look because they're just pixels it doesn't smooth or interpolate or anything what you do then is you put that layer inside of a file and inside, you put that layer inside of a group, you merge that group, and that basically sears the dissolved pixels into the layer, and then you can smooth that layer out because if you try and smooth the layer set to the blending mode of dissolve, it's just gonna add more random pixels in it. So you need to merge it with a group and then smooth it And then you end up with a really nice speckly grayscale roster that you can use as a mask for like a solid green color. And you'll get this very, very nice gradation of kind of speckles that thin out in a very seemingly organic way as tree cover thins out, while actually still respecting the actual distribution of tree cover on the landscape. And something more or less like that is what I use for the Ura map, and it's what I use for almost any map where I'm doing that kind of tree cover. And you can apply it to any other kind of land cover. Okay, I'm done.
1: No, that's exactly what I wanted, thank you. And uh, while I'm asking you to uh, (laughs) repeat yourself, this really nice uh, grainy paper texture over the whole thing, is that, how does that work?
0: That is the advanced science of putting a white layer over everything, clicking the add noise option in Photoshop a couple times, blurring it, um, masking out everything that's white, and then just kind of delicately blending in the black speckles that remains.
1: The stack of pretty simple techniques, like, yeah, I'll take the white, add noise, um, uh, blur it, drop the opacity, and fidget with it until it looks, looks right. That is only possible by, by going through.
0: That's exactly it. And the difference between being able to follow a tutorial step by step and making something that looks about the same and being able to fidget with it and be satisfied with what quote-unquote looks right is practice.
1: That's how I learned to bake maps in the first place. Is I just sat next to Daniel Huffman for 18 months in the cartography lab at Madison and just asked him, how do I do this? How do I do this? How come mine doesn't look like yours? and he would, you know, give me a pointer, and then I'd grind for an hour, like, dang, it's not looking right, and then he'd give me one tweak, and it would look a little better, and I'd still have to grind, like, even with an expert at my elbow, I still had to grind, but that's also kind of heartening, because I I pitch everyone, like, anyone can, he, that's what Daniel told me, he's like, anyone can do this if you try, just take swings at it, again, like making omelets, there's nothing Uh, incredibly technically difficult about it you just got to put in the swings
0: yeah yeah and it's why i keep the first map i made in my gis master saved on a file on my google drive because it looks like shit
1: (laughs) that will insulate you from ever having a bad day like my my day zero and now i look at look at what i got now and i
0: remember so clearly making map. i i made a map of i think beringia because I had found this awesome collection of, of paleoclimate data. And I was so proud of it, I was so stoked of it. Um, and I, I think I shared it some at some point with another cartographer I was a fan of, and they were like, oh, wow, I've actually made a map of Bryngia too, and they shared me a link, and it was so much better than my map in every single way, and it used the exact same data. And I got, like, I apologized to them for sharing my inferior map, <laughs> and I think they were mortified because they did not intend to have that reaction. But I was so embarrassed. I, 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 I can't even remember um specifically how long I took a break from making maps. But I was just absolutely furious with myself. Wait, and there's no. This need ruined to have, your week. <laughs> it really did. And, you know, the secret is is everyone who's good at something has many of those moments. And if they don't talk about them, they're a liar. And you will have those moments too. And being able to have those moments and start again is the difference between someone who said, eh, I wasn't really cut out for it. And someone who made
1: themselves cut out for it. Everyone thinks that ability is your limiting reagent. Like, no, it's effort. You have to be able to be willing to suck ninety nine times for the one the hundredth time when you get a little better. That guy was right to be mortified because people have probably shown you maps like, "Hey, I love your map of X, here's my map of x, and it looks a lot worse, but you would never think like, "Hey, stop trying like <laughs> you're on your way,
0: yeah, it can be kind of awkward actually when when someone sends me something that like subjectively in my opinion, it just doesn't look very good, and there's not any one thing that they could fix that would make it newsroom graphic quality, right? But I'm so excited that they made it that they tried that they worked up the the courage to share it with someone. And I always struggle with what to say, because you know, I want to be honest, and I want to help people improve, but I also don't want to hurt their spirit. um, Because that is really the most important thing. So it's always some combination of like, you know, it looks good. Maybe Think about this, this particular theory and just keep working at it and I'll help you out as much as you need, because, you know, it doesn't really matter if it looks bad or how it looks bad or how bad it is. They made it. And that's more than someone else who didn't make anything can say. And that is a massive victory that should be
1: cherished. That's so great that you uh, keep pushing along in that way all the map making advice I ever give is like here's a Dropbox folder full of nice looking maps just copy get it to look like this How you get there is uh, is going to be your problem again only way out is through but the nice part about being on the leaves of a 300 year old cultural product that has a lot of you know history behind it and masterful works in it is there's nothing new under the Sun and so you can just mine the past for nice maps and using your tools make it look like that. Again, it just takes paying attention and developing your sense by trying. Like I'm never going to like write out a long list of like okay, watch your kerning here, change this type size, make sure these faces match. Uh here's your blend mode problem. You can't do that. And I've never even been able to learn that way myself. You just got to put your like you did, put your nose in your Pinterest board and start getting a little try start getting half a percentage point closer every time you make a map and eventually you'll you know end up making some real masterpieces if you if you keep doing it
0: I I mean I agree to an extent I slightly disagree only because sometimes that very very specific point by point feedback is an excellent way of cutting directly to the chase and finding out what someone else does to achieve an effect that you like now This goes back to my point about tutorials. I would only ever accept that kind of advice from someone whose work I liked because otherwise I'm following instructions on how to make something look different from what I would want it to look like. But so, and, and, you know, I'll give that advice to someone, but only if they specifically ask for it and only if I think they can apply it. Um, and they're at kind of a, a certain level where that's useful.
1: Yeah, you're not trying to snow them in with technical stuff, like giving someone instructions where they don't understand every second noun is not useful.
0: Yeah, I'll say it's a massive compliment when someone you look up to gives you like specific feedback because it means they kind of view you as, as a colleague.
1: <laughs> yeah, they don't say, good job, sport. They say, mm, try this. <laughs> yeah, and that's
0: kind of the hard truth is there is a difference between a level of skill where the only really solid advice is to keep making stuff and a level of skill where the solid advice is more technical and specific. And I think it's one of the most important graduation moments when you go from one to the other.
1: Yeah. Like when I was an intern at National Geographic, it would take maybe six months from first draft to in your mailbox, maybe nine months if things got bumped graphics uh, maps were 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 just cooked a lot by a lot of people you would print it out and uh, stick it on a wall and people would leave post-its just like try this stroke with show me eight more different color combinations and it was all incredibly specific all incredibly minute and coming from like um, a a news background where it had to be done in six days or forget it because i'm not used to like fidgeting with the file putting it down coming back a week later, and then doing the same thing the next week. Like, that was totally foreign to me. And at the end of it, I was like, oh wow, this map looks way better than any one I've ever made before, because I got extremely specific, minute feedback about it. And it wasn't ever delivered in a harsh way. Nobody compliments sandwiched, which I liked. Like, it saved you a lot of time, when they were just like, yeah, change this. Yeah, this this isn't working, try this. And I was uh, really grateful for that. My detail, fastidious map making muscle has atrophied since then because I'm not fastidious enough to do that for any length of time. But it was a really useful experience for like how actual high quality work is made. Who is giving you the the tearing apart feedback? Is it like the graphics chief or like the news editor? Where do you get do you get that kind of thing?
0: No, at the journal, it, it could really be anyone. It could be the reporters, it could be your visual editor. That's kind of their primary job really is to, you know, look at your visuals, make sure it it connects with the story make sure it fits style. Um, It's also colleagues. It's also um, really anyone has the opportunity to just quickly look at it or it's kind of sitting internally and send you comments on it. I'd say the overall speed and attitude of a newsroom tends to make feedback very much to the point and direct. Um, but also because the majority of people who are looking at your map are not actually other cartographers, you tend to get a wide variety of perspectives, feeling that feedback, which makes for a very different map making experience than if you're making some, something, you know, that was about to be looked at by a room full of cartographers. Oftentimes I'm the only cartographer out of a line of like eight people who've given comments on a map and that's certainly an an interesting feeling but you also get comments that you probably wouldn't ever get uh, it was only other cartographers which is something i like
1: yeah they're the reader's advocates you're not there to snow them under with your visual cleverness you're there to communicate something
0: yeah and in this respect um i think cartographers have a lot that could be learned from journalists and it's why i quite like that so many graphics journalists bridge the two worlds and and give conference talks and all that, because journalists know very, very well how to sell a story. And oftentimes what it takes to sell a story and to move newspapers, if we're going to be honest, well, digital subscriptions is very different from what a cartographer may want to focus on. Ultimately, you know, Shaded Relief, it often gets left on the cutting room floor and actually made an entire talk at a conference about why I think this isn't the best thing, and how it could be mitigated, but there's also times where it's just true. And where a cartographer may want to spend time really dialing in the kerning on a particular label, or thinking of, of the best way to make a sharp, you know, um, hill hill shade like that that keeps like that ridge line intact. And editors just can be like, nope, cut it, simplify that, simplify this, change the wording here. And you know what? It's really annoying, but they're oftentimes right.
1: I was never particularly attached to any graphics I made that helped when like they, uh, chopped off most of it or got cut. And, but then like, when I'm looking, holding the magazine, like after publication day, I'm like, oh, they were right. It, what I had in mind was, uh, too futsy or just not communicating what we wanted it to. And as a cartographer, so much of your work is accretive, like that drip, drip, drip that only comes from like paying minute detail, to 10 million layers or data sets or whatever to build up a map like that and you might end up with something beautiful that like someone at the art desk would be like oh we that that won't come out in the printing our press won't do that or like the editor or the journalist will be like that doesn't reflect what we're trying to say with the story at all and you kind of learn that maybe my map aesthetics is not the only thing that matters here exactly no did you give that talk at nycar or something
0: I gave that talk at the ICA conference. Oh, okay, um, I imagine it might be lost at NICAR because everyone there is already a journalist. But the ICA conference was was all mountain cartographers, so I think it was a a different enough crowd that it had some merit.
1: Oh, I see. Was that a Was that fun? I've never been to one of those. Everyone's got to present, right?
0: <laughs> it's funny. Everyone thinks that that is not true. I think they're just so excited to have people actually give a shit that they're fine. If you tag along, don't actually do anything. Um, it was fun. It was the ICA mountain cartography workshop for people who may not be entirely familiar. This year's one was a couple weeks ago. It was in Granby, Colorado. I'd say it was, it was full of very specialized information. It was very much a form of cartography. I love and appreciate, but can't really do anymore um and I, I mean that's really all the thoughts i have on it that i think are relevant relevant here
1: you can't do it anymore like you don't flip that muscles atrophied
0: i just don't have the time man i mean we're looking at you know eric knight's making a map in like four months and he's meticulously crafting layers upon layers in the most beautiful 3d panorama you've ever seen um i made a map this week in six hours
1: the editorial mapper goes to that's funny it's like um uh uh, a a deli guy making 600 sandwiches a day going to the cooking show where it's like okay time for the 15-hour braise
0: yeah and you know what you can't prepare ahead of time and sometimes you get time to dial things in but that level of refinement on a single product it's just not feasible 90% of the time in a newsroom atmosphere. And you know what? That's okay. That's what I signed up for. And there's a lot I enjoy about it, but it did leave me with a certain tinge of logging for a kind of cartography that I deeply respect, but just, I'm going to leave that conference and I'm not going to really be able to apply a lot of what I uh, uh, what I learned um, because I don't have the time.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you got a higher throughput job, just how it is. But I'm going to ask you to roll it back a little bit because can you bring up the Glen Canyon map and tell me how you got the rock textures? Unless that's already a tutorial you wrote, in which case I'll just look at that. But I love this map so much.
0: Glen Canyon. Ah, yes, that one. Yes, 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 yes. Okay, so basically how
1: I made it? The rock textures, or whatever you want to tell me. I just, it looks so rocky. Like, I feel like I'm looking at an airplane window when I look at this map.
0: It's funny because that was actually not my intention. Um, so I had really been interested, obviously, in Tom Patterson's map of the same area of, like, Grand, Sca- Grand Staircase Escalante. And I wanted to kind of give my own spin on it, but I didn't want to copy him exactly because that, that didn't seem like as fun of a creative exercise. And around the same time, I had been... Really reading a lot of fantasy and sci-fi. I had become mildly obsessed with this French artist named Jean-Gerard Mobius. And if you don't know who Mobius is, he he was a very prolific kind of sci-fi fantasy illustrator. He has a very distinctive kind of inked style with these gorgeous pastel shades that can sometimes become very psychedelic and i just adored his approach to colors i basically copied the shades from a lot of different mobius artworks and used them as the basis to build some gradients for what what i approach is relatively standard shaded relief and that's how i kind of got these these very distinctive colors is you know m is a hex code sampled directly from you know 80s sci-fi artwork combined with um, texture shading and a lot of applications of curvature rusters, which I found make like, a huge difference in that kind of rocky, rocky look. If I have any secret, quote unquote, especially for my style then, it's curvature rusters. And a curvature roster is, it's basically the shape of a slope. It's the amount of change kind of a- across a slope. Um, you can think of it as almost like the standard deviation of a slope. And in practical terms, what that translates to is it gives you a sense of the feeling of the landscape, almost like there's this term timber in music, which is kind of like the characteristics of the sound. Curvature is kind of the characteristic of a landscape, whether it's very, very flat, very rugged, you know, sharp ridge lines, um, goalies, Curvature captures that very, very well. And it's no coincidence that it's kind of very deeply related to any sort of terrain texture shading algorithm you see. Um, And ArcGIS Pro has built-in curvature functions, and you could also do them using stuff like RVT in QGIS. I think of it as kind of a second-order form of terrain analysis where once you get past your basic slope, hillshade, aspect, you start getting into kind of analysis upon those analyses. And that's when you can start to reveal aspects of a landscape that take it a step beyond standard um, standard terrain. And it can get really wild really quickly. So I use curvature rosters a lot, um, especially the profile curvature, which is basically like the horizontal change of the slope. And that's really responsible for that kind of crinkly um, molded texture you see on a lot of my maps.
1: Is this something uh, Gdal can crank out?
0: Probably. I'm sure there's some nerd somewhere who's done an algorithm for it and is insistent on coding it out as the easiest way to do it. And they're wrong, but you know what? They're better at computers than me, so I'll let them have it.
1: <laughs> I'll point and I'll click in ArcGIS Pro and enjoy my time. Exactly, like
0: any honest American should.
1: All these beautiful hillshades are birthed out of ArcGIS Pro, right? Yes, they, they, are,
0: they are pulled from ArcGIS Pro, like, like orcs from the pits of Isengard. But now I figured out how to do it all in QGIS. So hopefully the FOSS listeners will, um, will stop throwing bricks through my windows. They're very difficult to replace.
1: I, like I used to work for the Forest Service as a GIS guy. The only thing I ever did was sit in my freezing air-conditioned office and be like, I hate Esri so much. They only exist because of federal government contracts, and they make everyone's, they make my life worse every day. And all of their unconsidered defaults become permanent aesthetic sensibility of tens of thousands of everyone from GS3 to GS15. And I'll never forgive them for it, and I'll probably cut this part out, but just so you know, I hate you guys reading.: <laughs> Look, I used ArcMap um, for
0: years, and I developed a special burning hatred for it, much like a caveman might develop a hatred for a saber-toothed tiger
1: error 999 again
0: please please evan i'm getting flashbacks so i will say this on esri because i've used both esri and Foss software to achieve basically the same results which is this you can use both and achieve basically the same results i do not think that was the case years ago as much as people may want it to have been i do think it's the case now and i think there's many places where you can actually achieve more with open source software than you can with Esri software. I think really the biggest selling point of Esri for a cartographer is probably the ecosystem and the web services that surround it. Um, And a bit of a double-edged sword is that many data services and many organizations host their data through Esri REST APIs. Um, But in terms of like shaded relief and like, you know, knows the grindstone cartography. If you have QGIS, you're set. That's honestly it. And you could probably accomplish more there than you could with equivalent level of understanding in ArcGIS Pro. And just forget ArcMap. If you're using ArcMap, power to you.
1: There's definitely a bunch of people who are still are in the federal, federal, federal state, municipal GIS guys. Yeah, and then like the six
0: people who use Avenza are staring at us from their their little dome island.
1: <laughs> I actually love Map Publisher. Like I use it. That's what I. That's my daily driver. For all the extremely basic GIS stuff, I use like turn KML into dots. Like that's so much faster than me dicking around in QGIS or GDAL or something. I paid sixteen hundred bucks for it, so that might have colored it. But I do use it every day, and I like it.
0: Look, every person I know who uses Avenza is incredibly talented, a wonderful human being, and uses it to make absolutely gorgeous cartography. I think the reason it didn't work for me is because my power level isn't high enough, but I just want to make it clear that I did try it.
1: Didn't stick? Hey, that's the best part about uh, map making. Everyone's, the idiosyncrasies. Some things that others swear by, uh, some will never, never touch, and that's fine.
0: Yeah, and you can learn, you know, you can learn stuff about QGIS from reading Ezra Tutorials and vice versa. Like, Aileen Buckley um, writes incredible little blog posts on, like, terrain analysis. And if you want to understand curvature rosters, I think her writing on it is, like, the best place. And then you can go ahead and apply all that to QGIS, you know. Set the world on fire. Embrace chaos.
1: (laughs) I love it. Do you still have any thousand yard long-term mapping projects? Say I cleared your docket, like gave you a few months to concentrate on something. Was there anything you'd like to try?
0: I very intentionally have not done that because I, I don't want to blur the streams um, and I don't want to make promises I can't keep. Um, I've instead scratched that itch by lining myself up for longer term newsroom projects, which obviously I can't talk about, but rest assured that I am doing longer term stuff that will come to fruition eventually if i could if i exist in like a perfect space where i did have free time to do freelance maps um i'd probably honestly do fantasy maps i'd say the only non-work related map i'm making right now is a DD map for my girlfriend i can see myself doing stuff like that it's really fun it works out kind of slightly different skills and it, it, you have to embrace technical solutions that you would never need making maps with real data. Um, I've kind of figured out how to make d maps using basically the same portfolio of tools as I use to make regular maps. And then I just kind of get funky in Photoshop with it.
1: So they're real GIS data that you, I don't know, flip or invert or turn 90 degrees? Basically.
0: Um, I basically figured out um, a little... I take a bunch of DEMs at the same scale and I blend them together to make novel elevation data. And then I use that as the basis and calculate basically every other aspect of a fictional landscape, because remember, if you have a DEM, you can calculate like um, hydrological data, hydrological data. You know, you can calculate all sorts of different kinds of terrain analysis. You can work out, um, you know, ocean and, and landmass, all, all sorts of stuff. You know, you can do least cost analysis. So you can make a pretty believable landscape with just a little bit of, of Photoshop, you know, clone stamp tool on, on some GMTED data.
1: I always think that, like, the D&D map guys, who I have the most respect for, because they make stunning works of beauty posted on cartographyguild.net, some PHP forum, and for, like, the acclaim of like nine gray ponytail guys and never make any money off it. It seems like non-overlapping magisteria. There's fantasy mappers and there's GIS mappers. And you're the first guy I've ever talked to who can do both.
0: I, I, if, in fact, if you look at my fantasy maps on Flickr, they're all made using that sort of technique.
1: Whatever tools get you there.
0: Yeah. And I kind of have the approach of, you're never going to be able to make more convincing terrain than actual millennia of geologic time. So, why try?
1: Have some humility.
0: Yes. Like, this is this yeah.
1: formed by all this geology and collected by radar altimetry. You think you're smarter? Unless, yeah. Unless you're a really good illustrator, I guess.
0: Yeah, you think you're so clever? You're just a little speck of dust and you're going to die and the Earth is going to mow over your body with mountains of
1: rock. So There, there we go, perspective. That's what I like. Yeah,
0: <laughs> I just think about that each morning while I, while I stare at the wall waiting for the sun to come up. I, I mean, sleep. Yeah. <laughs>
1: It's okay. I once worked in a big glass building in Manhattan too. Someday they'll be back to your mountains. Can you recall a particularly challenging project that really stretched you?
0: This story I did um, called Superblooms. The the actual title of the story is California's wet winter could lead to first Superbloom in years. And if you want, you know, the paywall free link, um, you should not, I repeat, you should not DM me because I will be compelled to share it with you. This is my legal disclaimer. Um, Basically, the gist gist of it was is I had been reading about super blooms, which is this kind of massive collection of wildflowers all blooming at the same time um, in California. And I was thinking about whether or not there was a remote sensing solution to that because I could not find a single map of super blooms. I could only ever find, you know, maps of, you know, here's great places to take a photograph of one, which isn't really the same thing. And I thought this may be a good opportunity to like write a remote sensing script that could do that, and it would make a really cool map. And I ended up spending like two months um, writing this this incredibly complicated script in Google Earth Engine that like analyzes Sentinel two imagery, uses control points, um, compares pixel values across like nine different bands, and uses like all these different thresholds and like three different indices to like identify flowering beds and then identify like a specific kind of, flower, of of bloom based on spectral signature. And took it to my editor and was like, yeah, that's great. Can't we just get pointed of wildflowers and having to like track that down, query all that data, worked with some, some wonderful experts like, um, like Dr. Naomi Fraga. Um, out of like uh, California wildflower um, organizations and then n- having like point data of like 50 different wildflower species having to like merge that together visualize it make it interpretable because wildflowers are scattered all over the place in all these 10 little patches and then actually make graphics at the end of that just like the constant twists and turns of applying a really intense GIS solution to a question and then realizing it didn't actually work and then having to find a simpler solution that still involved a lot of work, but did actually work really taught me a lot about, you know, when to pick your battles, but also that, you know. It was all worth it in the end because I did learn a lot about remote sensing that I didn't really know going in and I, and I worked out some of those muscles that had been sore for a while. And look, the story ultimately came out. So it all turned out into something after all.
1: Thank you. That's what a great story. Like one, after all that, something came out that uh, was a kind of synthesis of all this stuff, even if it didn't get to include all the gee whiz you started out with. And two, did you say it was based off Sentinel Two collections?
0: Yeah, the original script basically takes a giant stack of Sentinel Two images for Southern California. First, filters it by a series of indices, um, and land cover data to basically whittle away anything that isn't like uh, shrubland, um, with a certain level of NDVI. With it, like with like a certain NDVI level, so it's it's not only shrubland; it's shrubland that's like actively in growth or in bloom, and then from that runs it through a series of I think six different thresholds across a series of band values that I had I had calculated based on point measurements I had taken from like a single Sentinel two true color imagery. you could clearly see the blooms, and from that you end up with like this. This really speckly roster where every pixel is a true value in a single Sentinel-2 image that meets all these thresholds for a particular kind of flower bloom and sits on a kind of land cover that has a certain level of NDVI. So it's actually like growing healthy green vegetation. And then it it stacks that whole stack of imagery. So you basically end up with a roster of where the number of each pixel is the number of times a pixel met that criteria over a span of like five years. To my knowledge, it's the only map of, of wildflower blooms that's ever been made like that because I really looked to ask other people questions and I could not find it.
1: That's the best part about news graphics. I'm doing it myself.
0: Yeah, I've sometimes I've sometimes gone into a little bit of trouble for that because they're like, Carl, you have like 30 PDFs and you're writing this like remote sensing code. Just ask the reporter.
1: You're never punished as a graphics editor for trying to do something yourself, because whenever I'm asking the reporter, they're like, I'm too busy. I'm on like I'm the editor is hassling me. I don't want to talk to the graphics editor. And so I understand.
0: Oh, you'll definitely be punished. You'll just be punished in the sense that we don't have time for this.
1: Am I hearing that right? It's like, okay, this script takes into account the land cover, the soil wetness, uh, the specific spectral signature of a, a patch of wildflowers.
0: <laughs> and uh, checks over time how many images. Seasonality. Um, I guess in a way it indirectly captures seasonality because... You're only going to get certain NDVI values at different kinds of at different times of year.
1: That was my favorite part of my cartography master's program was remote sensing. I took like environmental remote sensing classes where they taught you all the G-Wiz stuff you could you know learn about Earth surface trends with you know your Landsat images, and then I took a a forestry seminar on remote sensing, and I'll always remember the professor said okay we're everyone get up or walk in the campus and we just left the lecture hall he handed us these printouts of latest nlcd collection and he's like okay what okay we're standing in a 30 by 30 meter pixel patch what's it say and it's like marsh and we're like what are we standing on we're like full canopy and he's like okay so it's wrong mark that and it's like kept walking like what are we standing on it says open water we're on asphalt okay (laughs) and like at the end of it He's like, remote sensing data is always wrong. It's, And then for the next assignment, he's like, we're going to do an exercise where we read remote sensing papers and try to find the ground truth part of it. And the joke was, we couldn't find any. No one ever actually walks out in the territory and samples because, you know, these academics or postdocs don't have any money. And they're not, they're always studying some random distant land they're not going to fly to. And so... Half my classes were like, remote sensing is great. And then this one class was this guy saying, uh, beware the fruits of remote sensing. And I just love that contrast because he was right. Like <laughs> in the extremely gross aggregate terms, remote sensing can tell you a cogent story, but for anything real specific or load bearing, nah, you got to show up. Um,
0: that's, I mean, that's definitely true, both in the sense of remote sensing is by its very nature based on the pitfalls of it being remote. And that there's always that one professor at every institution whose, whose job is to tear down um, the validity of everything else around them like a uh, like a god of destruction.
1: <laughs> you know, the only deconstruction in academia I liked is like, don't trust your tools. Yeah, I had a geology
0: professor who liked to walk around um, towns with a giant pole and he would put that pole in places and say, this is where the floodwaters are going to be. And he'd, he'd put his hand at a certain point on the pole, and the city council members recognized him by sight.
1: <laughs> this guy's making our uh, insurance rates go up again.
0: Yeah. I mean, exactly. They were like, oh, oh there's Eric in his pole again.
1: <laughs> I want to be that guy. Eric in his pole. The public nuisance. Yeah.
0: yeah. Now, here's my question as a remote sensing nerd. Um, do you have a favorite index?
1: No. I'll say my favorite uh, sensor is Sentinel-1, though. Oh, a SAR guy. Oh, I love... Th- SAR is so mysterious. I love it. Do uh, you, you know uh, Charlie Lloyd? That he name did, uh, rings a bit of a bell. His his handle is V-R-U-B-A on Twitter, and he has um, planet.parts, like a remote sensing compendium. He's a really cool guy. This was in, like, 2008. He's, like, a guy who's really good at scripting, and he's like, hmm, Landsat data is just arrays. I can script that. I'm going to make my own cloudless global imagery data set. And he just then. this is trivial in Google earth engine, but not in, you know, 2008, this was a lot of Python and he did it and sent it just as a lar. he tweeted at like a Mapbox engineer and they're like, uh, can you come in for an interview? And then he became a geospatial data guy after that. I love him because like, I just emailed him randomly. I don't understand radar data at all. And he like walked me through it and taught me how to download stuff and how to do a principal component analysis of. Uh, sentinel 1 stuff sent me a nutball video from like a national laboratory a full motion video radar uh, observation nro style stuff after you're you know using passive radiometers all day and then we're like okay we're actually going to throw some beams down listen for the echoes and learn the idiosyncrasies like oh big big black patch that's a salt flat or it's water and there's no way to tell other than context clues (laughs)
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. Except, you know, then you get into the nightmare of, of people who don't know SAR finding out about SAR and thinking it's like literal black um, black magic. And you have to like, well, you know, no. And they're like, you know, oh, you know, so we have to make this into a legend. What's the legend say? And I'm like, the radiometrically calculated backscatter um, value from point zero zero one eight two point zero zero but you know that doesn't matter you know look it's black and it's flat it's probably a lake
1: what more do you people want (laughs) yeah it's like time to learn about time to tell the wall street journal reader about polarizations like "Eh,
0: nope yeah it's like what's what's the wall street journal style of inferometry
1: in terms of black magic i'm interferometric truther yeah uh uh-huh you got two passes of sentinel one from 400 miles up and we're able to measure three centimeters of ground deformation not buying it. You know
0: what's really odd? Me learning like synth design for music helped me understand interfer- um, interferometry pretty intuitively, because in like music and electronic music, um, there's this, there's this, you know, there's this thing called phase, which is basically like the position of the wavelength. Um, and if you have two, say you have like two drums, um, and they both are, are Putting out frequencies that are very, very low, Um, their phases may overlap and actually cancel each other out. And you can end up with a situation where like your, your kick should be hitting really, really heavy, but it's not because it's lower frequencies are canceling out
1: destructive interference.
0: I I think actually that they're, they're exact, they're exactly um, opposite of each other or, or close to it. So they cancel each other out. And that is basically the same thing where you're just calculating the difference in phase to calculate the difference in landscape just you know obviously it's actual terrain instead of um like a waveform but honestly i think learning more about synthesizers and the science and like the physics of audio helps you understand SAR a lot better because they operate on very similar principles
1: Mm, all waves
0: it's all waves man open your third eye man Listen to some tool man let me sit here and braid my rat tail
1: (laughs) hey i'm a dyed in the wool california guy you can't see my turquoise jewelry and long gray ponytail i'm gonna pretend you didn't say that stuff
0: do you just like blast stone temple pilots um, while while cruising your way through the desert
1: if i could get a tan i would be a palm springs desert rat guy but it's not in the cards for my pallor do you have a particular place that you like to map like a landscape that you like to you know put your tools to
0: I like really using Mexico as a place to test out different scripts and different terrain ideas because, A, it's not the U.S., and I think it's always great to make more terrain and consider more the landscape of of countries you don't see represented in mapping as much, well, at least in the English-speaking world. Um, Mexico is definitely one of those places that should be represented more um, because it has very varied terrain. It, you know it's a surprisingly mountainous country I think more than people may expect, and it has many different kinds of mountains. You know it has volcanoes, it has um, playas, it it, ha- it has goalies, it has mesas, it has rocky, rocky peaks. It has low level you know hills. It has high mountain plateaus. It has coastal lowlands. So basically, if a script can, or a hill shape can capture Mexico well it can probably do most other places on earth well as well
1: as a test bed. Mexico is great for that.
0: Yeah. And I also, I just think it's a very pretty looking country.
1: Got it. Do you have any Mexico map? Oh, actually never mind. I've seen dozens on your Flickr. I have a lot of, you know, Yucatan and Mexico stuff that explains it.
0: Yeah. And that, that big, um, my map in the Atlas of Design is technically a part of Mexico.
1: Okay, nice. I know you mentioned like uh, Buckley and Nelson and Patterson. Are there any cartographers, living or dead, people should check out?
0: Josie Sashbill. She works at S&P and is just an absolute wizard with, with vector data. I'd recommend Claire Trainor. Um Yeah, she used to be at Nat, Nat Geo. I don't actually know where she is now. Oh, yeah, she's at Mapbox now. Would highly recommend Christina Shintani, uh, Shintani I think. She used to also be an at Geo. You'll notice that's a trend with many cartographers. Um, but she works at Woodwell, so she actually took a prior job. Emma Brown, one of my colleagues at the Wall Street Journal, is absolutely fantastic, and I can't say enough positive things about her work. Becca Holt who works at National Park Service, um, and hasn't done a lot of map- maps there, um, and she's she's gonna be so mad at me shouting her out right here, but I think she's she's done some very good stuff with. Kind of the few maps she's put out and Lauren Tierney, she is at Washington Post. So absolutely fantastic. She also used to be at National Geographic, but she's doing just amazing work where she is now. And she actually gave a talk at NASIS. Julia Leder, she's also at the Washington Post. She did some amazing maps of Brazil. Marie Patino um, works at Bloomberg, and she just put out an awesome map of the Arctic that I I've only skimmed, but I'm going to take a, a closer look at it. Wan uh, Mei Liang, she just literally like two days ago got hired by NASA, but she used to be um, a freelancer. She was a member of Eurisa, and her maps are in- incredible. She's, she's better than I was at kind of the same point in her career, and I'm really excited to see what she does at NASA. Um, Maddie Grubb. Met her at the ICA conference, sell some of her work. Unfortunately, she's a little bit hard to find online right now, but that's going to change. But she does just gorgeous hand-drawn shaded relief. Um, she started doing 3D maps as well. Um, she's based out of Montana right now, I think. But once you, if, if you manage to like track down some of her work, you'll be really impressed. I guarantee it.
1: I got to say, this has been so much fun, Carl. And... Uh, can't wait to see what you put out next. You got you got real chops. Uh, thank you so much. See Carl's maps at ChurchillGo.com. That's C-H-U-R-C-H-I-L-L. For show notes and bonus content, visit VeryExpensiveMaps.com. This episode is brought to you by The Map Consultancy, supplier of professional, data-driven maps for your decks, reports, walls, and events. Visit themapconsultancy.com to see what good maps can do for you. I'm Evan Applegate. I'm a cartographer. And you should make your own maps
0: no one wants to see dull ugly maps if you want to get through to your customers you need the best cartography money can buy the map consultancy will create maps with your data and your branding powerpoint decks annual reports conferences and events your office walls the map consultancy does it all visit themapconsultancy.com and get the best maps today